The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us today. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about products keeping environments safer. CloroxHealthcare.com forward slash C. diff radio. It is a pleasure to introduce our guest today. Dr. Katerina Onetto is a clinical assistant professor within the NYU Division of Gastroenterology and is board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine with Dr. Feuerstadt. Dr. Forstadt is a clinical instructor of medicine within the Division of Digestive Disease at Yale New Haven Hospital, affiliated with St. Raphael Campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and Milford Hospital, and is board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. Doctors Onetto and Furstadt join us today to discuss inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, and C. difficile infections. At this time, I would like to welcome our guests to the program. Welcome, Dr. Zonetto and Dr. Forrestat. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And not to waste any time, but Dr. Onetto, if you'd like to lead us off and explain what is inflammatory bowel disease. Sure. Inflammatory bowel disease, sometimes we call it IBD. Um, that is an inflammatory disorder. One has to always keep in mind this is a chronic disease, and sometimes that's a very important conversation to have with a patient who's recently diagnosed. It's a chronic disease that affects, just like chronic diseases like diabetes or hypertension, this is a chronic disease that affects the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so it's important also to differentiate that from IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, where there's no inflammation. Uh, and this disease, generally speaking, not in every case, but generally speaking, is considered a progressive disease. So diagnosing it on time and treating it appropriately is really relevant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that. And Dr. Forrestat, um, what are the differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? So that's an important question. The, first of all, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are subdivisions of inflammatory bowel disease. So inflammatory bowel disease can be looked at as the umbrella term, and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are, are below the inflammatory bowel disease. They're a subtype or a subclassification. And when we think about inflammatory bowel disease, we have to think about what the disease distribution is, what segments of bowel are affected, and other factors that contribute to help us as clinicians make a diagnosis, but also for patients to have insight about what symptoms might be, ca- might be causing uh, their, their presentation. So 
With ulcerative colitis, the disease distribution is most frequently the large bowel or the colon, and it is held within the colon. So typically it starts with involvement of the rectum, the exit area of the colon, and there is a continuous distribution, meaning that either the entire colon is involved or a continuous area from the end of the colon, the rectum, heading forward and heading upward is involved. Alternatively, with Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease can affect anywhere from the mouth to the exit area. And Crohn's disease actually can have what's called skip areas, where certain areas are affected and other areas are not affected. So Crohn's disease can affect the esophagus, the stomach, the small bowel, and the colon. It can certainly mimic or look like ulcerative colitis and have a continuous involvement of the entire colon called a pancolitis, but it can also just involve certain segments. When we think about the different diseases, though, ulcerative colitis is a more superficial disease. So the bowel is typically thought of as being four layers thick. Ulcerative colitis usually involves the upper two layers. Crohn's disease involves all four layers. And as a result, ulcerative colitis typically presents with symptoms of of loose stools and weeping off of the bowel as a result of that, whereas Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease can present in many different ways. It can present with just inflammation, and that inflammation can occur anywhere, and that can cause almost an obstructive pattern. It can present with stricturing, and the difference between inflammation and stricturing is stricturing is a scar. And that typically involves a surgery to correct versus inflammation can be treated medically. And also, you can have something called a fistula. A fistula is an abnormal communication between two areas that shouldn't be into contact. So occasionally what you can have is you can have so much inflammation that's through and through with Crohn's disease that the small bowel can communicate with your urinary bladder or different areas of the small bowel can communicate with the colon. So you can get these communications, and that's another thing that we can treat medically. Now, the other factor here, when you consider Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, are what we call extra-intestinal manifestations. What I've been outlining so far are the intestinal manifestations. The extra-intestinal manifestations include what we call rheumatologic manifestations, such as an arthritis of the arms or legs or of the spine. You can have skin changes. A, a painful rash called enidosum that can occur on the lower extremity or a ulcerated lesion that can occur on the lower extremity called pyoderma gangrenosum. You can have changes in your eyes where you can have redness of your eyes or something called episcleritis. There are biliary changes. The biliary tree is a tree that communicates between the liver and the intestine and it brings bile from the liver which produces the bile into the intestine. Well, you can have an inflammatory process called PSC, primary sclerosis and cholangitis. About 5% of patients with ulcerative colitis get primary sclerosis and cholangitis, but 70 to 80% of patients with PSC have UC. You can also get bone disease, such as osteoporosis. Osteoporosis can occur because you're malabsorbing nutrients, vitamins, and minerals, and also kidney stones because you're absorbing too much nutrients and vitamins and minerals because of changes to the lining of the bowel. Wow. 
Dr. Pirostat, that is a lot of information and things I know that a lot of us didn't have any idea. So between you and Dr. Onetto explaining the irritable bowel disease and the differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, there is a lot there to be said. And thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Yeah, Dr. Onetto. Sometimes people focus a lot of the, on the bowel aspect of this, and as Dr. Feuerstadt was mentioning, the skin and the joints are frequently affected, and sometimes they actually precede the gastrointestinal symptoms. So sometimes we get uh, patients from the rheumatologist or from the dermatologist, doctors who deal with the joints or the skin, and they refer the patients to us saying, you know, we're finding this manifestation, this inflammatory issue in the joints or in the skin. Maybe this patient has inflammatory bowel disease, and sometimes that's, that's the way the patients get diagnosed. Wow, amazing. And Dr. Onetto, who gets inflammatory bowel disease? Well, inflammatory bowel disease affects Primarily, I would say the young, the highest incidence uh, is between the ages of 15 and 40 years old. Um, it can affect both genders. There's a very mild predominance of uh, ulcerative colitis in men and Crohn's disease in women, but generally speaking, it affects both genders. Uh, we used to think of inflammatory bowel disease as a disease that affects certain groups, certain ethnic groups more, like Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, but now more and more we're seeing, first of all, that the incidence in general of inflammatory bowel disease is going up, and also that there are some environmental things that are changing uh, this epidemiology we used to think it was so clear. So people who have certain genes, so let's say, for example, there's a classic example of Jews migrating from Africa to Israel, where in the original country they had a very low incidence of inflammatory bowel disease, and when moving to Israel, the, the incidence went up. So it seems like it's not just genes, there's also a component that has to do with environment, which we will discuss later, uh, but it, it can affect a wide range of, of people. Okay, well, thank you for that. And Dr. Fierstadt, um, has the demographic of patients with inflammatory bowel disease changed over the last couple of decades? Yes, well, what we've seen, and, and Dr. Arnetto was alluding to this before, is previously we thought that there were subgroups that were affected more, significantly, significantly more than others. But in reality, as we started to look closer at this, the subgroups that we previously thought were less affected people of African-American descent, Hispanics, what we're starting to see is they seem to be affected in a similar fashion, but it probably was an issue of access to care. And that's really something that's, that's characterized inflammatory disease over the last 10, 20 years is that we've seen an evolution in treatments, but we've also seen an evolution in the epidemiology. The other thing that, that we've seen change a bit is 20 years ago, we thought that there was a bimodal incidence or two peaks of incidence of inflammatory bowel disease between the ages of 15 and 40, and then another peak in the ages of 50 to 60. But what we've learned and what we've seen is that people between the ages of 50 and 60 probably had the symptoms their whole life, but it really came to the forefront of their mind that their stooling habits were abnormal or that their other symptoms were contributing to a larger picture when they, when they were in their 50s and 60s and present, were more likely to present to medical care. We've got a lot of interesting, interesting findings. What we found with inflammatory bowel disease is that 
the predominance is really in Europe and North America. And actually, there's, there are differences in the, the locations within these continents. Individuals in the northern portions of the continents are more likely to have inflammatory bowel disease, whereas individuals in the southern portion of the continent are less likely. And we're not really sure why that is. We've also found an interesting genetic uh, correlation. Individuals who are first-degree relatives, mother, brother, sister, or father, have about a 10 to 15-fold higher incidence of inflammatory bowel disease, obviously, if, they, if a sibling or somebody in their immediate family has it. And we've seen that there's actually a genetic component to this. There's something called the NOD2 or the NOD2 gene, which is associated with Crohn's disease. And as we learn more and more about these diseases and more basic science studies come out, we, we appreciate more about the diseases and we have better targets for treatment. But again, IBD is also associated with other genetically known disorders like ankylosing spondylitis, eczema, celiac, cystic fibrosis, as well as multiple sclerosis. So really the picture that I'm painting here is that it's a complicated one. And as we learn more and more, we'll have more clarity about, about where this disease comes from. Yes, that's very important to, to mention that there's a genetic component, it seems like, a genetic predisposition, and then there, there may be an environmental factor also. So this is one of those many diseases, unfortunately, that where we say the pathophysiology is heterogeneous, meaning many factors, but we don't quite understand which factors exist. And certainly uh, there must be some sort of environmental trigger because we've seen these changes in, in incidence. So, for example, in countries like in China or in India, the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease is going up. And we don't really know. It, it could be related to diet, but it could also be related to urbanization. I mean, these are countries that are undergoing tremendous social and economic changes. So it could be that it was diagnosed less before, but it could also be that this disease is just occurring with more frequency. Well. I thank you so much, doctors, for sharing this important information with our listeners today. We're going to pause right here for a commercial break. When we return, Dr. Zonetto and Dr. Paul Forrestat will continue discussing inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4C-DIF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. 
Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing. Number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, a global broadcasting network. And we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Katerina Onetto, Clinical Assistant Professor within the NYU Division of Gastroenterology and Board Certified in Gastroenterology and Internal Medicine with Dr. Paul Furostat, Clinical Instructor of Medicine within the Division of Digestive Disease at Yale New Haven Hospital and affiliated with St. Raphael Campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and Milford Hospital, also Board Certified in Gastroenterology and Internal Medicine. Doctors Onetto and Dr. Furostat join us today to discuss inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Welcome back, doctors. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting Thank us. Thank you. Okay, well, before break, you provided a thorough introduction of what inflammatory bowel disease is. Dr. Furostat, if you wouldn't mind leading us into explaining how inflammatory bowel disease is treated. Inflammatory bowel disease is treated based on, if you would envision, a, a pyramid. The way that we think about the, the treatments are in a list. And there's the bottom of the pyramid, which are the least potent, and the top of the pyramid, which are the strongest treatments. Now, some providers believe in using the strongest treatments up front, other provi- and that's called top-down therapy. And other providers believe in using the least potent or the uh, least strong treatments up front and then working their way up to the most potent. And that's, most potent. And that's really a philosophical difference that, that providers have. Um, there's no 100% correct way to, to treat inflammatory bowel disease because as we had discussed in the, in the last portion of this, the patients present in different ways and have different predominance of symptoms and judgment needs to be made on what the most appropriate therapies are. The first set of therapies that we're going to talk about are what are called the five ASAs or the five aminosalicylates. And these are basically topical anti-inflammatories. So if you'd envision when we swallow a pill, these pills go through our digestive tract and are chemically structured in a way to release in the area that they were designed to release in. Most of them release in the colon. And bacteria in the colon or the pH, the acid-base status in the colon, give the trigger 
for the capsules to open, and then they literally coat the bowel in an anti-inflammatory, reducing the inflammation of inflammatory bowel disease and reducing the risks associated with it as well as the symptoms associated with it. There's also direct triggers and direct treatments, something called a Rawasa enema, which would be an enema for somebody who has disease that is closest to the exit, or a canassa suppository, which is absolutely at the exit area and gets inserted into the rectum and directly treats those areas. Now, it's a bit controversial currently about usage of these five aminosalicylates in Crohn's disease versus ulcerative colitis. The data in ulcerative colitis show that five aminosalicylates are helpful. In Crohn's disease, the data are somewhat mixed. So some providers do not use 5-aminosalicylates in Crohn's disease for primary therapy. But the question comes up, and this is something that had some data a number of years ago, regarding colon cancer prevention. And there was some data that showed that in patients that have colitis as a result of inflammatory bowel disease, if they were on these agents, they had a reduced risk of colon cancer. The subsequent data didn't fully reinforce that, so currently we are not sure. Now, with any treatment, there are side effects, and the side effects with 5-aminosalicylates include nausea, vomiting, anorexia, a worsening of the colitis. There are more modern agents, though. So some of the agents are sulfasalazine, colazal. These are the older agents that have a little bit more of a wide side effect profile. The more modern agents, such as such called Lialda or Aprizo, have less side effects. And the second level of the, of the pyramid that we talk about are what are called immune modulators. And these are what we call 6-mercaptopurine and azathioprine. When these are prescribed, typically I give a heads up to the patients and say, when you get this prescription, it will tell you that it's a chemotherapy. But the reason that we're using this is not for chemotherapeutic purposes. What we're using this for are anti-inflammatory purposes. So this is a pill that individuals take, based, and the dosing is based on their weight. And this, too, has some data to show that either used alone or with other agents that Dr. Onetto will be speaking about briefly can re- induce what we call remission. Our goal with inflammatory bowel disease is, A, induction, and that's, taking away the symptoms, and B, maintenance or maintenance of remission. And these treatments help in, help, can help induce remission, but also, most importantly, maintain that remission. 6-MP or azathioprine, as I said, inhibits inflammation. Side effects include anemia, neutropenia, and elevated liver tests, and we follow the blood counts and the liver tests very, very closely throughout this treatment. In the beginning, we do it about every two weeks, and then it goes to about every two months chronically. But the biggest thing that patients find out when they search 6MP online or when we talk about it during the office is a slight increased risk of lymphoma. And that's a hot-button topic, but not a major problem, at least in practitioner, practitioner's eyes. The visual that I give patients when we talk about immune modulators and 6MP specifically is thinking about a piece of paper that has 10,000 open dots on it. You were, if you were to have an individual not on 6-MP, you would fill in two of those 10,000 dots, and that's the incidence of lymphoma in the general population. In somebody who's on 6-MP, you would fill in two more of those dots, so four in 10,000. Is it a statistically significant difference? Yes, 
there is a statistically significant increase in risk of lymphoma in patients who are on 6-MP, but it is a nominal increased risk compared to the benefits of controlling the inflammatory bowel disease and minimizing the risks of complications associated with that. Now, the next group of agents Dr. Onetto is going to talk about, and these are the biological agents. Absolutely. But before I move on to the biologic agents, I think Dr. Forrestad brought up a really important point, which is to put the side effects or the potential side effects into context. And to a patient, it, it sounds very different to say you will have double the risk of lymphoma or triple the risk of lymphoma uh, from saying your risk will go from 2 in 10,000 to 4 in 10,000. Um, and that context matters a lot. And also understanding that increasing the risk of a very rare disease is not um, a, treme- a huge problem when you compare that, for example, with the risk of other cancers. I mean, the patient on one of these drugs is still much more likely to have any of the other cancers that are common, breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, etc. So context uh, matters, and I think that's always important to emphasize. Uh, regarding biologic agents, biologic agents have been considered a big uh, game changer in the, in the management of inflammatory bowel disease and particularly in the management of Crohn's disease because Crohn's disease is a progressive disease for the most part. Also, the colitis, um, I'd say, responds more to other drugs, but in Crohn's disease, we tend to uh, be a bit more concerned about progression, about need for surgery and, and such. And so we, we, and every doctor, as Dr. Forsyth was uh, mentioning, practices a little bit differently, but we tend to be a bit more aggressive in patients with Crohn's disease because we have concerns about progression, how aggressive the disease will be. Um, biologic agents, like the name implies, are different from the other drugs that are just sort of chemical, so we call them biologic because they're made in cells. They're actually antibodies. Uh, and these antibodies target specific parts of the immune system that fuel inflammation. So it's like putting an obstacle in one part of the inflammatory cascade to interrupt that inflammation. And right now we have, uh, we've had for, for over 10 years, a number of um, drugs that are, um, we call, I call them now the old biologics because we now have new drugs, but medications like maybe you've seen ads on TV about things like Humira, for example, that's adalimumab. So that's one of the more famous drugs, but there's infliximab, adalimumab, sertralizumab, golimumab. They all end with MAB, and that stands for monoclonal antibodies. And they, they're all fairly effective and fairly quick, actually, in, in their effectiveness. Uh, unfortunately, one thing that uh, makes these medications not tremendously popular is the fact that they're all injectable. These are drugs that if you were to take them orally, they would be digested in the, in the gastrointestinal tract and they would not have any activity. So they have to be given either intravenously, and that's an infusion, or um, subcutaneously, meaning a self-injection uh, that the patient um, performs. It, generally speaking, I think that these drugs, and everybody practices differently, but um, I think we're using them more and more. And also, in terms of the side effect profile, uh, with all medications for inflammatory bowel disease, um, but particularly for immunomodulators and biologic agents, steroids we're not discussing right now, but generally speaking, when you are trying to control a disease that's driven by the immune system, um, one is taming the immune system, which has functions, and the main functions of the immune system are to protect us against infections and to protect us against tumors. And 
the data that we have today has been fairly reassuring in terms of biologic agents. We um, used to blame them more for malignancies, meaning uh, tumors, and now we're, we're knowing more and more that the risk of immunomodulators seems to actually uh, be higher than the risk of biologic agents. But the jury's still out on, in terms of how much uh, these drugs increase the risk of, of, those, of uh, malignancies or can- uh, cancers. Okay, and Dr. Onetto and Dr. Frostat, thank you so much for sharing all that. And Dr. Frostat, is there anything new at this time? Yeah, there's a couple of new things that are still under the category of the biological agents, and Dr. Onetto was alluding to that. Those are what she was discussing before were uh, products that bind onto the chemicals that cause inflammation. Well, the new kids on the block bind the switches that turn on the chemicals that cause inflammation. And one is called ustekinumab, which is a which is Stellara, and the other is Vitalizumab or Intivio. And what these do is, like I said, they bind onto the switches, they minimize that downstream inflammation and have a positive effect. Ustekinumab or Stellara has a bit better data in the treatment of Crohn's disease and Vitalizumab Intivio has better data in the ulcerative colitis space, but these are new tools that that providers have for patients who are refractory to some of the other, quote-unquote, older biological agents, and it's really added a lot to what we can do for patients with inflammatory bowel disease, so we're really excited about these. Absolutely, and it's really good to know that there's some new tools on the on the horizon for the physicians to use for these patients. And yeah. Dr. Fierlstadt, I'm sorry, Dr. Onetto, um, yes, I, I was, was just going to say... one little thing about well, the, one of these absolutely. two drugs, vedolizumab, and in terms of safety, this has been very reassuring because vedolizumab seems to be a more a cleaner drug in the sense that it goes more directly to the gastrointestinal tract and it affects receptors that are in the gastrointestinal tract and not as uh, broad as drugs like the, the other biologic agents that I was talking about that will go to the joints and the skin, etc. So it's good that a drug goes everywhere because it will treat things like psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis like adalimumab will do, for example. But at the same time, one wants to try to minimize side effects so medications are a bit more narrow and just go to the gastrointestinal tract will likely have a better side effect profile. Okay. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing all the information. And right now, we are going to break for a commercial break. When we return, Dr. Onetto and Furostat will continue discussing inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. 
Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4C-DIF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. Diff Spores and More, Global Broadcasting Network. We welcome our listeners joining us today, and we welcome our guests joining us, and a pleasure to reintroduce our guest today with Dr. Onetto, a clinical assistant professor within the NYU Division of Gastroenterology, board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine, with Dr. Paul Furostad, a clinical instructor of medicine within the Division of Digestive Disease at Yale New Haven Hospital, affiliated with St. Raphael Campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and Milford Hospital, also board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. Doctors Onetto and Furostad Join us today to discuss inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Welcome back to the program, doctors. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having us. Uh, oh, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing all this really important information with all of our listeners. And before break, Dr. Furstad and Dr. Onetto, you were discussing inflammatory bowel disease and treatments. Would you mind both, um, let's talk about irritable bowel disease and C. difficile infection. Um, Dr. Ronetto, would you like to lead off and explain what C. difficile infection is? Sure. So C. difficile is a bacterium, and it's what we call a gram-positive 
anaerobic rod, and it has the ability to form spores, which Dr. Forsyth will explain uh, to us later how that is so important in the transmission of this disease. But it causes an infection, and we call it C. diff colitis, because it, it, that's an infection that affects the colon. And the importance of this infection, there are many diseases that affect, infectious diseases that affect the colon, but one of the things that makes this disease so devastating is that it can be recurrent, and that's something we're going to talk about in a minute. Okay, wonderful. And Dr. Forstadt, how does a C. difficile infection, or how does it infect individuals? So C. difficile infects individuals because it has really two phases. It has what's called a spore phase and a vegetative phase. The phase that most of us associate and think about with the infection itself is the vegetative phase. That's the phase of the infection that stimulates the diarrheal syndrome, stimulates the colitis or inflammation of the colon. The spore phase is a much hardier phase. The spore phase is, is a phase that's almost like it's in a cocoon. And the spore phase is the reason that the infection spreads so much. The spore phase is resistant to gastric acid. It's resistant to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. So classically what happens is the spore phase is left on a surface. It can remain on a dry surface up to six months and remain viable. Spore phase is swallowed. It passes through the gastric acid. Once it gets through the gastric acid, it gets into the small bowel, and there are some triggers to say, hey, you know what? It's time to convert. And what happens is there's a rapid conversion to the vegetative phase. And the vegetative phase multiplies, divides, and multiplies some more as it builds an army heading towards the colon. But Dr. Ronetto and I are both gastroenterologists, and we think the colon is a really smart organ, and it is. The reason for that is that the colon not only has the inflammatory and immune system that's in and lining the bowel, which we've discussed as part of the inflammatory bowel disease portion of this, but it also has something called colonization resistance. And these are the proportions of bacteria in the colon, specifically the bacteroides and firmicutes, that can resist C. difficile infection and fight it off. What classically weakens the colonization resistance? Well, that would be antibiotics, amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolone, and cephalosporins, weakening colonization resistance, creating an environment where that C. difficile, which was building an army heading towards the colon, can take over, and it does take over. Now, you don't always need antibiotics, though, to create an environment for C. difficile to be able to take over and cause the infection. And patients with inflammatory bowel disease have a different kind of environment, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt. And Dr. Ronetta, are patients with inflammatory bowel disease at increased risk of a C. difficile infection? Absolutely. The short answer is yes. By how much, it depends on which study one is looking at, but there, there's a very significant difference, actually, between the, the uh, risk of a patient who already has inflammatory bowel disease and a patient who doesn't have an inflammatory, inflammatory bowel disease. If we're thinking about patients who are hospitalized, the overall uh, rate of uh, C. diff is much higher, about ten, eight times higher in patients who have inflammatory bowel disease than in patients who don't. And this is something that's been found in several small studies. And um, it's not just the incidence that's increasing. There are many difficulties that we will discuss, in ter- challenges in terms of both diagnosing C. diff in these patients and managing it later, and also the severity of patients of C. diff in patients who already have an underlying gastrointestinal issue is, is, is much more. 
It's also interesting to note that the, the incidence has increased. We've observed that overall for inflammatory bowel disease. But for some reason, in some of the studies, it looks as though Crohn's disease incidence has not really increased, but ulcerative colitis has. And we're not, we're not really sure. I'm talking about the incidence of C. difficile in patients with that disease state, to be specific. And we're not really sure why that is, but it's certainly something that's been seen in a couple of different studies. Okay, and Dr. Forrestat, why are individuals diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease at increased risk of an in, of requiring a C. diff infection? We, we were kind of alluding to this before. I gave the example, the classic example of a cause for C. difficile infection, and the risk factor for C. difficile infection is an antimicrobial exposure, an antibiotic exposure that changes the bacteria in the colon. Well, patients with inflammatory bowel disease are believed to have something called dysbiosis, which is an alteration of the bacteria in the colon. In addition, they have an alteration of the lining of their bowel and their immune system because their immune system is in a chronic inflammatory state. So between changing the bacterial environment and changing the inflammatory environment, the entire situation in the colon of somebody who has inflammatory bowel disease is different. Now, an important concept to know and understand when you think about C. difficile is the concept of colonization. Colonization is a situation where an individual has C. difficile in their system, but they don't have the symptoms. And it's estimated that about 60% of healthcare providers, people who deliver healthcare, actually are colonized with C. difficile. They're healthy individuals. They have C. difficile in their colon living chronically, but the bacteria in their colon are able to fight this off and are able to suppress it and keep it under control. However, if they get a trigger or the bacteria in their colon changes or their immune system gets weakened, there's a chance that it could reactivate. So really, in inflammatory bowel disease, patients have weakening of the immune system and an alteration of the bacteria, and that's what we believe to be the reason why patients with inflammatory bowel disease are more likely to get this. Okay. And Dr. Onetto, is there a difference in the presentation of C. difficile infection in patients with inflammatory bowel disease? Yes, there's a, there are a few di- uh, differences. It's important to remember what the risk factors are for the general population and sort of contrast that with patients who have inflammatory bowel disease. So in the general population, older patients have C. diff a lot more often than patients who don't have, who are, who are younger. Also, patients who have received antibiotics ha- are at higher risk. Patients who uh, have been hospitalized, all those patients are at higher risk. In inflammatory bowel disease, in a sense, you don't need all those risk factors. You can have um, C. diff, and one, one can have C. Diff, diff fairly often when one has inflammatory bowel disease involving the colon uh, without antimicrobial exposure or in a younger patient or a lot of times uh, what we call community-acquired C. diff. So those risk factors are not as necessary, so to say, in order to develop the, the actual infection, C. diff colonization and, uh, and later colitis. So when, when we think about risk factors for C. difficile infection, what we, what we just outlined and what Dr. Ornetto just outlined are really the, the associated presentation in patients that have inflammatory bowel disease, but we should take a step back and remember that there are also risk factors for C. difficile in general. And those risk factors, as was alluded to, age greater than 65, female gender, any sort of an immune compromise, specific medication exposures. We've 
spoken twice about antibiotics, but proton pump inhibitors or acid suppressive medications increase your risk of this infection. In addition, environmental. Does an individual live at a skilled nursing facility? Does an individual spend significant amounts of time at a hospital? Is the individual on dialysis and exposed to others that might be at risk for this? Also environmentally, does the individual work at a healthcare facility? So with inflammatory bowel disease, it's almost a double whammy in terms of risk factors because they have the alterations that we discussed with the bacteria and the immune system, but also they fulfill a lot of the standard risk factors that are associated with C. difficile and acquisition of C. difficile in general. Okay. Well, Dr. Frostad and Dr. Onetto, I thank you so much for sharing that important information with our global listeners at this time. And we're going to pause for a brief commercial break. When we return, Dr. Zonetto and Feuerstadt will continue discussing inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1 844 4CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. 
For additional information on handwashing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. Diff Spores and More. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. Diff Spores and More, Global Broadcasting Network. We welcome our listeners joining us today, and it's a pleasure to reintroduce our guests joining us, Dr. Katerina Onetto, Clinical Assistant Professor within the NYU Division of Gastroenterology, Board Certified in Gastroenterology and Internal Medicine. Joining her with Dr. Paul Furostat is a Clinical Instructor of Medicine within the Division of Digestive Disease at Yale New Haven Hospital, affiliated with St. Raphael's Campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and Milford Hospital, board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. Dr. Zonetto and Feuerstadt join us today to discuss inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile infections. Welcome back to the program, doctors. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And before the commercial break, uh, you were discussing the IBD, irritable bowel disease, and C. difficile infections. Dr. Forrest, when a patient with IBD presents with worsening diarrhea, should they be treated for a C. difficile infection? Uh, Okay, so an important question is, first, should they be tested for C. difficile infection? Treatment is something that we have to first tease out whether they're presenting with inflammatory bowel disease or whether they're presenting with C. difficile, and that's something that's challenging. But every patient with inflammatory bowel disease that presents with worsening diarrheal symptoms typically should be checked for C. difficile infection. As we had discussed before, a lot of these patients are quote-unquote carriers where they have the C. difficile in their system, but it isn't actually causing the symptoms. So it's really important to detect C. difficile in these patients and get rid of it because they could get a double whammy where they have an exacerbation of their inflammatory bowel disease and that triggers worsening C. difficile infection or progression of the C. difficile infection to a virulent form or the inflammatory bowel disease could be well controlled, but the C. difficile infection takes off. So it's very, very important that every individual who presents with inflammatory bowel disease and worsening diarrhea get checked for C. difficile. Absolutely. I would like to emphasize that point. I mean, when one has a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, one has to test the patient so that, A, you can treat the patient early, but also, B, sometimes these patients are on other drugs that need to be be stopped. Let's say the patient is also on antibiotics and another antibiotic, or the patient is taking some sort of immunosuppressant. Well, one has to consider the risk and the benefit of that, but a quick diagnosis is always important in C. difficile, particularly important in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Okay, and uh, so that would be how you would differentiate a C. difficile infection from IBD symptoms, Dr. Onetto? It's, sometimes it's a little bit challenging. I mean, if a patient does not, if a patient simply has C. diff, most patients who have simply C. diff, uh, I shouldn't call it simple, but only C. diff without an underlying problem, C. diff uh, colitis without an underlying problem normally does, it gives diarrhea, but it very rarely gives blood in the stool. So that is a red flag. If, if um, a patient is presenting with diarrhea, even if they test positive for C. diff, but the diarrhea has blood in it, one has to think, 
okay, maybe there's something else going on here. Secondly, there are patients who have had C. diff before, and as many patients will tell you, they, there's a smell of that stool that sometimes they recognize that they, they find very distinct from any other type of diarrhea. And sometimes it's very difficult actually to differentiate these different types of colitis. So one has to actually go in and take a look and see if the colon looks like it was inflamed for an inflammatory reason, if there's underlying inflammatory bowel disease, or if there are findings that are very specific for um, C. diff colitis. Okay. And Dr. Forrestat, if a patient with IBD is diagnosed with an initial episode of a C. difficile infection, what treatment should they receive? That's a really a good question, and it's something that's probably a little bit more controversial now than it was a few years ago. The way that we triage treatment for, for C. difficile infection specifically is looking at factors that predict poor outcome the white blood cell count, the creatinine, which is a measurement of, of kidney function, as well as the albumin, which is a measurement of protein in the blood. Based on those measurements, we can triage or figure out which patients have mild, moderate disease versus which patients have severe disease. The guidelines recommend that patients that have mild to moderate disease receive metronidazole, whereas the patients with severe disease receive vancomycin. My thought process is that when I see a patient who has inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile, the metronidazole is much less likely to be effective, and the patients are probably much more likely to have a recurrence. Therefore, I typically push either vancomycin or fidaxomycin deficit up higher into the treatment algorithm. So I will give either vancomycin or fidaxomycin initially and see how they respond just to be a little bit more aggressive because the goal is to get this infection controlled rapidly, even more so in patients with inflammatory bowel disease to minimize the risk of triggering worsening of the inflammatory bowel disease. Okay. And Dr. Onetto, are patients with irritable bowel disease at increased um, risk of recurrence of a C. difficile infection? Absolutely. So C. diff infection tends to be recurrent, and not only in inflammatory bowel disease, but in, pa- in the general patient population. It, one of the, Dr. Forrest was discussing different antibiotics, the newer antibiotics, vancomycin and fidaxomycin, seem to have a lower risk of recurrence, to uh, present a lower risk of recurrence than the older medication, um, metronidazole, but still the risk is somewhere between 15 and 25%. In patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, this risk of recurrence is around 40%, so it's much higher. Okay. And Dr. Onetto, uh, is there a role for FMT as a treatment? Yes, there is a role for FMT. FMT is restores probably some, the, the most important factor in all this, which is the integrity of the um, intestinal microbiome. And um, we were actually reviewing the guidelines. This is a very recently published thing, published by the American Association of Gastroenterology. Um, and it was a review where patients with inflammatory bowel disease who have recurrency diff should be offered fecal transplant uh, as an alternative. Now, with that in mind, one has to know that fecal transplant, even though it is the most effective treatment for uh, C. diff, is still uh, considered investigational therapy, and that a percentage of patients, somewhere between 20 and 25% of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, can have a flare of their inflammatory bowel disease when they receive a fecal transplant. Yeah, so really, I mean, fecal transplant positioning in treatment of C. difficile is still after you have at least 
probably two to three recurrences of the infection. So after somebody has an initial recurrence, what you can do is if they receive, specifically an inflammatory bowel disease, um, if they've received vancomycin, you can consider giving fidaxomycin. If they've received fidaxomycin, you can consider giving vancomycin for about 10 to 14 days. After they get two recurrences, Really what we look at is what's called a prolonged vancomycin taper, where you can give four tablets daily of 125 milligrams for a couple of weeks, three tablets daily for a couple of weeks, two tablets daily for a couple of weeks, one tablet daily for a couple of weeks. And that's been shown to be effective. So where fecal transplant is positioned is still on the backside of treatment. I consider it like a bullpen agent, like a closer in, in baseball. It still can get the job done, but since it's still considered an investigational treatment, it hasn't quite positioned earlier on in the treatment algorithm, especially in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, because there have been some interesting results looking at fecal transplant for patients with IBD as a solitary treatment independent of CDEP, but that's beyond the scope of what we're going to be focusing on today. Okay, well, Dr. Sonetto and Dr. Forrestat, you have provided us with a wealth of information for both patients and fellow healthcare professionals, and we certainly appreciate you being here with us today. Um, thank you for being on C. Spores and More Broadcasting Network, and we are going to close the show. And we thank you again for being here. We ask our listeners to please listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Central Time, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, sorry, with our guests to discuss up-to-date information focused yet not limited to C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical studies, environmental safety, and much more. Once again, we thank our official sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Visit their website, healthcare, cloroxhealthcare.com forward slash C. We would like to thank Synthetic Biologics for being a diamond sponsor of the 5th Annual International C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo, taking place on November 9th and 10th in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website www.cdifffoundation.org. We send out our get well wishes to all patients being treated and recovering from a C. difficile infection and our many well wishes during, um, for all the patients you know, dealing and suffering through uh, wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with a reminder that none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.